it's kind of a, if you like, a conceit that many commentators have expressed by saying you can't put an economic value on nature because the fact is you have to. I mean, a farmer does, a fisherman does, a logger does. That's not a contentious issue. The issue is how do we put a value to those services for which there are no markets so that we don't even have a first cut into the value. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Partha Dasgupta. Partha is a Frank Ramsey Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Cambridge. He is the author of a recent report commissioned by the UK Treasury entitled The Economics of Biodiversity, the Dasgupta Review. Partha previously taught at the London School of Economics and Stanford University. He helped develop the journal Environment and Development in Economics, published by Cambridge University Press. Martha, welcome to the podcast. I had the good fortune of meeting you during an event we did recently for the Financial Times. You are a clear and articulate spokesman for the value of nature. So I'm really looking forward to continuing our discussion today. I'd like to begin with the crisis in the natural world. We're currently living through one of the greatest extinction episodes in history, with species being destroyed at up to a thousand times the natural rate. How concerned should we be about this? Describe the scale of today's acute biodiversity challenge. Well, I think it's a very good way of framing the problem, introducing the problem, because the species extinction rate that you just now mentioned is the best estimates that now there is by biologists. And that of course has a sort of immediate, should have an immediate response from us because species are live creatures, groups of live creatures, and they're disappearing and largely due to us. Uh, that's something to be taken very seriously and a cause of not just concern, but also shame. But species extinction is, comes in parallel with many other signatures that nature offers us. And what I, was, what I found some two years ago, just as about the time I was beginning to think about the way to write the report review, I found that a huge amount of work that's been done by earth scientists and ecologists, and some by economists, were all converging together to say the same thing, namely that the demand that humanity is making on Mother Nature's goods and services, the goods and services that the biosphere produces, churns up regularly as a renewable uh, resource, far exceeds today nature's ability to supply them on a sustainable basis. And interestingly, that excess the gap between demand and supply began only about 50 years ago. So while economic models ignored nature, let's say in the early 50s, that wasn't a travesty because we were small beer at that time. But now we are not. And we have no business not to embed the human economy in the biosphere when we think about economic possibilities of the future. You know, it's fascinating because as I think back on the 50s, 
And I remember traveling around the United States with our family traveled in a station wagon and there being all sorts of dead insects all over the grill of the car, just mm -hmm. huge numbers. And of yeah. course, we don't see that today, right? Yes. And birds are declining, bird species at a dramatic rate. And of course they eat insects. So they're all, but you're right. We weren't worried about that then. I, I remember the first time I really thought about it was in, you know, the Silent Spring when that book came out, but, but any of it. So let's get now to some of the, the economic issues. But for many years now, environmental conversations, economic conversations have been, you know, dominated by climate change. But biodiversity loss is obviously a key contributor of climate change and vice versa. Could you explain how these two issues are connected and also how they're different? Sure. Um, climate regulation is one of the multitude of services Biosphere offers us. There are other services. The immediate ones we can think of would be, for example, pollination, nitrogen fixation, decomposition of our waste. That's something that we really have to take very seriously into account, uh, we economists. And these services, the interesting thing about these services are that the processes that are generating these services that the various ecosystems on Earth produce are complements of one another. They're not substitutes. So if you tamper with one sufficiently, in a sufficiently heavy duty way, it's going to affect the others adversely. That's what we mean by complementarity. I won't say the biosphere is a house of cards. That would be the, you know, the ultimate of complementary objects so that you move one and the whole house falls apart. Nature is not like that, it's much more robust. On the other hand, we humans now are so smart that if we put our mind to it, we could convert nature into the house of cards. And I'm afraid that's, we're leaning in that direction at the moment. So our climate regulation and the interference we have made to the mechanism that is behind climate re regulation, which is carbon content of the atmosphere, that's one of the services that nature provides. And that, that, of course, that's related to biodiversity writ large because that diversity is centered in huge amounts of carbon and carbon capture by, the, let's say, the rainforest regulate climate. So to the extent that we erode the rainforests, we affect the climate. And of course, the climate changes in turn affect other processes. And so the complementarity is the thing that we ought as economists to take into account, to take very seriously. So they are related, completely very related. But I think I would like to say that one weakness as I see it now, uh, as I see it in my review, or at least uh, influenced the way I wrote the review, a weakness I see in the economics of climate change that is now seen as the received economics is that it's so Climate, climate uh, when I say climate regulation, I mean Mother Nature's regulatory process. I don't mean government regulation of, of uh, emissions. I mean regulation in the sense of nature's service. It's seen independent of other processes. So what the typical climate model, economics of climate change model does is to embed a climate system onto a conventional model of economic growth that we are all used to or we have become used to over the past 30, 40 years of development, without any mention of the various other processes 
that are complementary to climate. So that makes a lot of difference because you're basically regarding the climate system as an add-on to the human economy. Whereas instead we ought to think of the human economy as being embedded within the biosphere and so subject to all the processes simultaneously. Very well said. You know, in some ways, the biodiversity crisis is even more alarming than climate change. And I think it's in part because there's been a lot of work done on climate change, but when it comes to biodiversity, scientists have only begun to quantify what that means for mankind. As you've said, we owe a lot to mother nature. And some of the risks of throwing our global ecosystem out of balance are impossible to know, let alone to calculate. So what are some of the biggest risks you see for humanity? Well, I think um, the risks come from various ends. Some of the world's leading earth scientists have proposed something like nine major risks. They call it planetary boundaries, nine planetary boundaries of which one is the climate. The other are the state of the oceans, for example, because the oceans are a huge biome servicing the rest of the biosphere and is in turn being serviced by the rest of the biosphere and so forth. So out of the nine, two are already stretched, the climate being obviously one. Now I want to say one thing rather, which is I think rather important, which is climate change the economics of climate change has one, if you like, light at the end of the tunnel that shows, which is it's in principle possible to think of reducing emissions, in fact, having even negative emissions over time, uh, by moving to clean energy. And because of that, the idea could be maybe encouraged to think that technology can so solve these problems that we face, the other dangers that we face for example, disappearance of species, and therefore many of the other services, for example, decomposition of waste, pollination, and so forth. The problem is that for the other problems, technological fix is a misconceived notion. We really have to manage our affairs so that our demand is reduced. The technological fix is to say that we can supply energy which we need, so we don't have to reduce our need for energy, but because the source of our energy will be free of tampering with the climate. But when you ask what we need to do in order to get the services that say the rainforests offer us or the peatlands offer us, then you can't simply say that we'll construct an artificial forest out there which will be giving you the same services. So we have to be really careful before we think of technological fixes and we are led to it, we are encouraged to think along those lines in the climate problem. This is an area where you and I are just singing the same song here, which is the top line message as we, we talk about this is sure we have to put an economic value on nature and I'm gonna to get to that in a minute. But the point that we both continually make that it's very important, much more important to preserve and conserve our natural capital because then deal with the impact we're gonna have if we destroy it or even think about how to go about restoring it. 
That's, right. so that's just fundamental principle. But your study makes a great case for putting an economic value in nature and breaks some new ground in doing so. Tell us why this is essential. I think it's essential. First of all, I should say that uh, it's not I who have made the major breakthroughs in this. People have been working on trying to estimate the used value of various types of ecosystems. There are environmental and resource economists who have been doing it, and I pulled them together. But I think I've done a fair job of uh, going beyond the use value to think about intrinsic value, which also others have thought about and tried to estimate by asking people how they feel about it. And then I, I think I enlarged the discussion to include the value we place on nature because some parts of nature, some aspects of nature in every culture are seen to be sacred to them. And this is not just traditional societies, the most sophisticated societies as well feel something sacred about aspects of the landscape. They may not use the word sacred, but that's not the point. The point is that it has real dimension, give dimensions to our life in their absence, we would not otherwise have. Now, it's extremely important to bear in mind that the idea is not to value the whole of the biosphere because that not, does not have much of a meaning. Because if the biosphere is degraded sufficiently, then we'll all be dead and there won't be anybody to transact with. So it's not exactly you're saying that the biosphere is worth so many trillion, trillion, trillion US dollars. That's not the issue. That's not the point. The point is to ask, what is the value that a, a particular ecosystem has for the lives of people if you just stick to the use value of an ecosystem. And then you ask, if the ecosystem is damaged, what is the reduction in our welfare owing to that? So let's say it's a wetland and it serves many functions. One of them is water clearance, purifying water. Another is that it houses our biodiversity, pollinators, for example, who benefit the farmers. Now, if you damage the wetland, because let us say you want to build a road through it, then it makes sense to ask what would be the reduction in the productivity of the wetland in terms of the services that I've just now mentioned. And can we try and put a value to that? And it seems to me to be absolutely essential we try and do that, because otherwise it's kind of a, like a conceit that many commentators have expressed by saying you can't put an economic value on nature. Because the fact is, you have to. I mean, a farmer does, a fisherman does, a logger does, and you go to the poorest countries and they are the first to give put an economic value because their lives depend on it. So that's, that's not a contentious issue. The issue is, how do we put a value to those services for which there are no markets so that we don't even have a first cut into the value? If they had markets, then you could say, we could quibble over whether the market prices are reflecting the total value, if you like, it's the social value, the value to all of us. And, but because of these widespread externalities, many of these services do not have a market and no price. So you have to tease out by working with ecologists. And that's extremely important that we economists work increasingly with ecologists in understanding uh, economic principles and devising uh, institutions. Because without their help, we would not know the underlying mechanism, uh, which is churning out these services that we all enjoy. So yes, it's extremely important to value uh, ecosystems. And you've done a good job of explaining why it's difficult 
to put a value on some of them, but why it's essential that we do so. And I like to explain to people that because it's difficult, market pricing is you know going to be imperfect. But we can't let the imperfect be the enemy of the good, because when we don't put an economic value on natural capital, policymakers often consider nature's benefits free, and as a result, they're valued at zero. And that's leading us to a point where we could, you know, be the only animal in history to destroy ourselves by destroying our home. It's just, it's crazy. But uh, so let's, you know, you did something that really caught my attention in your review. So tell our listeners about your inclusive wealth model. The founding father of economics, Adam Smith, wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. He did not write a book called The Income of Nations. And he had a reason for it. The reason, underlying reason, was he realized, I like to think, as well as you and I do today, more than 250 years later, that it's assets which we count. We hand over assets to our children, to our descendants. It's assets, durable goods. It could be knowledge, it could be education, it could be homes, it could be buildings and so forth and so on, but it's assets we hand over. And also, of course, ecosystems. Generations pass them on in one form or the other. So when we assess the performance of an economy, we should be looking at the following question. Is that the inventory of assets we are handing over to the next generation or to ourselves the following year, how does that compare with the inventory of assets that we inherited the previous year or from our previous generation? Because it's the transmission of assets over time, which is what we call economic change and life's changes. So inclusive wealth is simply trying in a very uh, precise way to put a value to the entire list of assets that say a household owns or a country has access to or the global economy has, depending on who you are representing, whether it's a household or a nation, or studying whether it's a household or a nation or the world as a whole. So assets, inventory taking, stock taking, which companies do all the time, uh, balance sheets, but we don't, nations don't have balance sheets. And that's, the reviewers are urging nations to move in a direction of preparing an inventory of assets. And of course, the inventory of particular interest to us should be natural capital because they're so easily uh, erodible and are being eroded. You know, I, I love that because I've often said our role, you know, the role of economic systems should be to maximize our long-term prosperity. And that's really what you're getting at. When you're talking about the assets we're leaving to our children and our grandchildren, that's the key. And I've often, when I talk about conservation or preservation of natural capital and the global ecosystems, I think about it in terms of uh, generational equity. It's what we're doing right now in terms of maximizing short-term income is really destroying the future prosperity of our children and grandchildren. And there are not many families that would want to do that, but we as a society are doing that. And so your generational equity is taking this very simple concept and coming up with a way 
to develop economic models that solve to that. So I, again, I, I applaud that. Thank you very much. We have, you, you and I are completely on the same, same wavelength on this one. Yeah. You talk a lot about the concept of inclusive wealth. You advocate that it's a better benchmark than GDP for figuring out how to grow economies sustainably. But for all practical purposes, the world is going to be looking at traditional GDP growth for the foreseeable future. So is there a role for traditional GDP growth informed by your concept of inclusive wealth as we adapt our policies to preserve our natural ecosystem? How do you see this in practical terms? If we're starting from scratch, you know, I, I think there'd be a lot of people behind the concept of inclusive wealth, but we're not starting from scratch. And it's hard to change given some of the entrenched interests here. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, how this will play out is very hard to predict. And uh, being an academic economist, I'd be, I would be even more pressed to project into the future how things will shape up. But here's a thought, which is, yes, GDP is in any case useful for short-run macroeconomic policy ma management. And that's, it's incontrovertible. So it's, this is not an argument against having GDP as one of the indicators that you use. The criticism that I have been leveling is its use in assessing long-term human well-being. And the reason GDP doesn't cut the ice, so to speak, is that GDP represents gross domestic product. And gross means that depreciation is not included. It excludes the depreciation of capital assets. Now, that for buildings and the natural depreciation of human capital through death, for example, you can estimate really approximately and you can adjust GDP if you wish to do so. With modern nature, the matter is far more complex because we can run down an entire ecosystem in five minutes flat if we choose to. And if you concentrate on gross output, the fact that you may have increased your gross output at the expense of ecosystems by destroying them, that won't be recorded in the GDP figure. So in some sense, you could in principle be building a house while cutting down the floor on which the house is built. So this, this is why we need, we need inclusive wealth. Now I'll come to that in a minute, but uh, inclusive wealth is really the social value of all your capital assets. But at this point, you and I are discussing our common interest, which is nature, natural capital. So what we need to do is to run estimates of the extent to which natural capital is being degraded and keep that in mind when we discuss GDP growth to see whether the policies that we are following are enhancing GDP over time, but at the expense of natural capital. And if we have data on that, then we can have a sensible and civilized discussion on policy. Right. Now I want to get to another area, which finance. So finance and financial institutions can play a big role for good or for bad when it comes to natural capital. And so that's something you've looked at very carefully. What are the first steps that can or ought to be taken to start the transformation of our financial systems to better integrate nature? It's a really tough question. That's the toughest question you've asked today. 
<laughs> and I will not be able to give you a satisfactory answer. But let me start from where we would ideally like to be. As I see it, and as I suspect others do, and I know you would do, is that what we're interested, what we should be interested in as a human society, is to create institutions such that within those institutions, the incentives that each one of us has, given our motivations, given our preferences, given the things that are feasible for us to do, take actions which are in our own interests, which when aggregated together, reflect the common good. That's the ideal situation. And when we talk about perfect markets and when economists talk about perfect markets, ideal markets and so forth, that's what they're after. That you don't have to tell people what to do. Their actions will be coordinated in such a way as to bring forth the common good. Intergenerational equity, as you were actually saying, that's the class of issues. Common good, including future generations. Okay. Of course, that's not happening, obviously, because of all these missing markets, let's say, just for the sake of argument. So then the signals that the private sector financial companies face are wrong ones, and we have a problem there. And CEO of a company, when he or she goes home and has to respond to his or her children who say, uh, what did you do today? Have you been wrecking the universe again? They worry about that. So they bring that worry to bear. On the other hand, on a day-to-day -day basis, they have to worry about the bottom line because that's the world that they're living in and the shareholders and so forth. So there's a, there's a conflict here. And I've met since the review was published, I've talked to a number of extremely concerned CEOs in a variety of sectors, uh, including the banking sector and so forth. And they bring out this tension. They draw attention to this tension. Now, what should be done? Well, of course, the easiest thing would be to say, well, maybe we should have taxes on the use of these goods which are unpriced. That's the easy way. It's like saying, you know, let's say put a tax on carbon emissions that will raise the cost of carbon in use. And so that will direct a movement. Now, that's not going to happen so easily. So one thing that I've been discussing with uh, CEOs uh, and other, other people in the, in the private sector is perhaps disclosure is a way to overcome missing markets. And I mean the following. Imagine that you have a company which imports primary products from the tropics, say coffee beans, and then transforms them into the products that we consume in the US or the UK. There's a whole supply chain. And the firm knows that because of these imperfect markets, there is a tendency to erode the ecological base of the exporting country, even in the neighborhood of the coffee plantation which will be damaging the coffee plantation in the long run, which means there's a threat to the supply chain and that raises uncertainty. So what should it do? Now it could do one thing, which is to say, well, all right, I'm going to disclose. I want to discipline myself and I want to improve the conditions of my source of supply. So I invest in the ecosystem there, of course, which is going to cost me money. And I have to explain to my shareholders why I'm doing that. Well, I, I need not have done that but I'm doing that. But one justification for that is, well, I'm going to disclose what, that I'm doing it so that consumers know that I'm an ethical firm. And if consumers are thus more and more concerned about the states of the biosphere, then of course I build up a good reputation. But that's risky though. First, one thing, this costs money and you don't know whether the consumers are going to necessarily notice or move in line with it. 
However, suppose the firms get together and say, well, why don't we approach the government to impose the condition of disclosure, a requirement that we disclose. Now, in some ways, we are doing that already in terms of food, the food we eat and the drinks we drink, because now food products have an entire list of stuff that's the ingredients that go in as ingredients, you know, sugar, salt, and so forth. And the reason is that we care about our health and we insist that we want to know what's in it. In other words, we're trying to solve a moral hazard problem by forcing firms to disclose. And what I'm suggesting here is one way out in my judgment would be for companies to take, if you like, precipitate an action by encouraging governments to tie their hands because collectively tying their hands will make them better off than they would if they were untied. That's a nice way of saying it. And that would be great if companies would come together and encourage governments to do that. And there's some companies I know, I do a lot of work with the private sector that would like that and it would be a better world. But I also look at it from the government standpoint. And I think they have a responsibility to impose disclosure requirements. And why shouldn't financial institutions and businesses need to disclose their environmental risks, their biodiversity risks, just like any other risk? So if you're a bank and you're making a loan or an investment in a business that's harming the environment, shouldn't you have to disclose that, right? And if you're doing something that's got a positive impact, then you should disclose that also. It's interesting, Partha, because, and I think I'm sure you found the same thing. When my institute did a similar study to yours on you know, the need to preserve nature and putting an economic value on biodiversity, the two things that stood out to me that could be done that don't require a lot of money and will make a big difference would be regulation of finance, right? And if you had different practices in the financial world, and of course, ag subsidies, because we have so many flawed ag subsidies, whether it's you know, fisheries in the ocean yep. or forestry or farming that uh, create the wrong incentives. But I like the way you went at it because I know you're right. There are many heads of major institutions. No institution wants to destroy the environment, but there are competitive pressures that force them. Otherwise, they'll, you know, they'll go out of business ultimately if they don't perform well relative to their competition. So that's why we need regulation and regulation needs to come from the government and businesses should be encouraging rather than fighting it. That's absolutely right. Hank, I started with the, from the point of view of the firm. Yeah. I based the, the incentive on the demands that consumers or citizens will make on their product or the risk they take. But you're absolutely right. It's the government which is responsible here because they do need to introduce these regulations. But ultimately, it is we, in democratic society, it is we who are responsible. And until we get our, I hate to say act together, but our minds together, nothing will happen. Nothing could be expected to happen. It's our responsibility to force, to, to urge our government leaders that, look, there is a massive institutional failure here. Market failure is just one aspect of it. And we care about our children, even if others don't. And we want to preserve their standard of living, the assets that we can bequeath on them 
and those are at risk, and those risks can be lessened if certain such types of actions are taken by you, namely government. Now this brings me to another question, because one of the things I heard you do when we did this event together was stressing the role of education of the citizen as critically important parts of moving to a world where we engage sustainably with nature. Talk about this. Why is this important? I think the reason I put particular emphasis on education is, uh, and the primary education actually, is that modern nature is not just mobile, but only mobile. And it's the mobility which is the driver of many of the externalities we've been discussing, including climate change. Mobility means that if, for example, I emit carbon here, then it'll over time drift off to distant land and so forth, or the oceans carry stuff around. That's one feature, but the two other features which often go unrecorded or unreported or unappreciated is that much of nature is silent and invisible. And those are, for example, the processes, for example, under our feet in the soils. Enormous amount of stuff's going on there. It's a veritable factory. I see you know, infinite number of factories out there and they're churning out stuff on which we live and we don't notice it because they're silent, they're invisible. Now, when that happens, when you have that kind of resources, it's impossible for any institution to identify the source of any degradation. You observe something degrading and you say, who is responsible for that? Now, in normal course of you know, normal life, when we see some activity we do not approve of, or it's damaging somebody, we trace the source and then we punish them. For example, a fine or a jail term or whatever. But if you can't track the source of the problem, then you, there's no way by which you can create the incentives for us not to do it. So then it occurred to me that, well, we won't do that if we love that object. Just as we don't have to monitor each other's activities in a household, in a family, because we care about each other. We don't want to do something wrong, even if nobody, <laughs> because it'll hurt somebody we care about. So then I asked myself, how do you develop an affection for nature? That's not another person. And it seemed to me that the only way you do that is if you begin to understand the mystery of the processes, the, the fact that it's such a beautiful tapestry of resources acting without thought and producing the goods and services which are wondrous, flowers, bees, you name it. So I thought, especially with the increasingly urbanized society where children do not have access to nature in quite the way perhaps in your country kids did 200 years ago, we ought to have nature studies introduced as compulsory subjects. In the UK, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic are compulsory. And one of the proposals in the review is that we should change, include a fourth, nature studies. And then of course, the idea would be to have some form of nature study through one's education program in the same way as, for example, in colleges, you used to have CIV, where every kid has to take a course in which you have some idea of evolution of Western civilization. It's extremely important to know that. You live in it, so you need to know its history. So I thought that would be the right way to go about it. So I've just given you an elaborate reasoning. It's not just a, a you know, fanciful notion because I'm a professor, I said, well, you ought to have more education. There is a reason behind it.
And you're right on because it's it's common sense. People don't want to save what they don't love. If you love something, you're going to want to save it. It's hard to love it if you don't understand it, right? And so I think education is a key. Now, Martha, I'd like to end on a question about a topic that I think many people don't know because there's, you know, in, in terms of what's going on and at the UN level and with some of these conventions. So the UN Convention on Biological Diversity or the COP15 is due to take place later this year. And the UK is hosting the COP26 in November. So could you briefly tell our listeners what these events are? And then I want to talk a little bit about them. But first, an explanation. These are ongoing discussions that uh, the UN organizes. So it's 26 and 15, as opposed to numberless, as it were. These are conference of parties. And the idea is to study these global public goods and the problems that we are confronted with because of a lack of institutions to handle them. The COP26 is for climate, COP15 is on biodiversity, goes back to 1972 when there was a Stockholm conference. Okay, so that's that's the background. The biodiversity work has been far less regular and funded than the climate change one. You have had IPCC reports, that is to say, International Panel for Climate Change. These reports come out periodically, they've been funded for a long while. In contrast on biodiversity, in understanding the state of biodiversity, the state of nature, if you like, reports. The first that came out was in 2005, a four volume or five volume production called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. So it was a state of the world study, a kind of a summary of, if you like, an inventory of stocks out there, that is to say ecosystem, and what state are they in? So it was a first cut into an extremely important problem area to have an understanding of what the world is like out there, the natural world is like there. And of course, trying to understand, to report on the processes that are driving them. Because without knowing where we are and what the state of affairs is and what the processes are, we wouldn't know what kind of policies to think about. Uh, the second one has just come out. that I mentioned the 2005 report, the, the most recent one has come out uh, only a year ago. So it's more primitive in some sense. The assessments are more primitive than the climate assessments, partly because less money has been put into it so far, and partly also because it's far, far more difficult, far, far more complex. So we have a long way to go. Now, these meetings are where countries get together and come to some arrangements, some commitments about what to do next. And in the case of climate, of course, the climate negotiation, the Paris Agreement was one where countries took responsibility for limiting their emissions. Likewise, there will be similar things about targets for biodiversity protection and so forth. Uh, The problem, as I see it, is that in my review, I argued that it's not much point in taking individual countries making commitments when the commitments don't really have the sticking power of commitments that we usually think in legalistic terms without an institution backing it. And it seems to me that global public goods, such as the open seas, the high seas, which are uh, their public goods because they're producing all the stuff that we enjoy, all the regulations that I just now mentioned uh, previously, are nature's regulations, and we use them for our traffic. 
all the material goods that are being shipped from one country to another, the shipping, and there's also fishing a bit, but that's minor. Shipping, transportation is the key activity on the oceans. Nobody pays a price for it. There's no charge. So it's like having free roads yeah. and there is no government to build the roads, you know, preserve the roads. Okay, so here is a case where the oceans are free to use and there is no institutions studying what is happening to the oceans. So it seemed to me, so in the review, that just as our predecessors had the foresight and commitment to create such in international institutions as the World Bank and the IMF, which were designed to supply public goods, the latter to supply financial stability of nations and the former for development and reconstruction. Those are very imaginative rules that we should now think of in instituting an international institution, which will be mandated to monitor, manage and charge, which remember with the money will be ours, global communities for the right to make use of these assets. We could even use that kind of revenue to pay countries which house some of the global public assets, such as the rainforest, tropical rainforest. And that they are curious, they are not open access. They are within national jurisdiction. And they can and do argue that, look, you can't tell us not to pull down our trees, but we need to develop. So we're going to create uh, cattle farms or, or plantations, soybean plantations or something, okay? And who are you to mourn and groan about it? Now, whether or not they're correct is not the issue. The issue is they have a right to do so and they're exercising that right. That's why, that's why, and that's ex expressing the fact that these forests are disappearing at a furious rate. Uh, and we should be worried about it because that's tied up with climate change and what else, what else, okay? Now, one solution would be to pay for these services, preservation. That practice is now increasingly common in payment for ecosystem services where farmers are paid to provide the services that others enjoy because others are, you know, others are paying, the beneficiaries are paying. So I'm thinking in terms of a global commitment of that sort. And the institution would, would charge fees for the commons, like the open oceans, or in, this, in, in the, uh, now it's too advanced now, it can't be done, but for the atmosphere as a sink for our pollution. Could that revenue would more than rough calculations, albeit they are, suggest to me that the, that revenue would be so gigantic, it would easily pay for the payment for ecosystem services in terms of managing, maintaining, preserving the tropical rainforest. But not, none of this is on the agenda, so far as I know, and I don't know why. It's not on the agenda, so I'm going to end with one last question for you. You know, past conferences like these. Uh, failed to halt the destruction of our natural world for the reasons you went through. They don't have teeth. They're voluntary targets. Uh, so you know, your study is perfectly timed, and this is clearly a very important year for nature. Now, I think both of us know that your ideas you know, have, are not going to be implemented right away. But are you seeing things that are making you hopeful for the future of our environment or our planet? Yes, I think I do. Uh, it's in our children. Our children are far more attuned to it than certainly I was when I was a kid. Uh, but that's many, many years ago, by the way. 
<laughs> so, and maybe at that time, it, there wasn't that kind of urgency. But increasingly, I see kids, children, being extremely exercised. And I like to think they have an influence on their parents, that parents learn from their children. This is a case where they can very profitably do so because we've all run into bad habits now uh, with the, essentially a free biosphere. Uh, so we use it uh, to our heart's content at the expense of the children. Now, so far it hasn't become a war of the generations, thank God, because it would be much nicer if the children took us by the hand and told us, go on, change the rules and allow nature to survive. Yeah, I think that's why it really comes down to education. I think in many ways, one of your most important recommendations is to change the curriculum in the schools. I really do. So Partha, thank you for this interview and for all you are doing to advance and accelerate actions to save our planet. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I had no doubt we would be in agreement. And it's always a pleasure and I hope we'll meet again soon. All right, I look forward. Thanks. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.